I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hi, Ben. Hi, Agnes. How are you? I'm OK. I've been a bit poorly, so I've been away, but um, I'm on the mend now. How You're about you? Yeah, no, I've got no excuses for anything. I feel <laughs> I feel hunky-dory. How's your jet um, lag? Yeah, oh, the jet lag is long gone. That is a thing of the past. Excellent. Um, I very courageously overcame it approximately half an hour ago. Well done. That's very <laughs> good. And it's May. I'm so That's pleased it. that April's over. Mm-hmm. And although I was really cheery today about it being May... And then I saw a pigeon eating some chicken out of a bin. Right. I mean, what's the problem with that? They're sort of the same thing, aren't I they? I suppose they are, aren't they? <laughs> so yeah. it was a bit up. I don't think pigeons are supposed to eat fried chicken. But Although, fried chicken's delicious. I don't blame the pigeon. Oh. It, just, it just creeped me out a little bit. <laughs> that is a bit anyway. creepy. That's not the best way to start your day, is it? No, it's not. It's not anyway. Especially if you're not well. How's IA? Um, IA is really good, yeah. yeah. Good? We're, uh, we're just uh, ticking along. Got the May issue coming out... On Friday. Exciting. Which will be great. It's a really fascinating range of pieces. We've got stuff on intelligence. We've got stuff on China. We've got a really fascinating article on US-China relations as seen through this prism of technological innovation and cool. and how new technology plays a role in foreign policy and geopolitics. And, okay, yeah, awesome. Which is great. And um, yeah, so that's coming out. But how's, how's the world today? Yeah, it's good. I mean, I've been away, so I don't You've know. You've been away, so, so who knows? In, it's yeah. been in the capable hands of Alan Phelps. Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. And I'm just very excited about this new podcasting technology we have. Look at this microphone. <laughs> it's amazing. Yes, for those of us. <laughs> for those of you, as in this. everyone who can not actually see what is happening. <laughs> yes. We're sat in front of some different some different recording technology. Hopefully, um, just to explore what the sound implications are. Yeah. Hopefully, it all sounds lovely. Hopefully, you won't notice. If not even better, hopefully you'll think we were just sat in the studio as per. Yeah. But obviously, if you think there's a problem. Don't get in touch, actually. Okay, fair. Because <laughs> we touch. don't want to hear that, do yeah. we? We don't want people to tell us that the sound's not good enough. Striving for improvement, Agnes. I know, but you're really do. good at this, Ben, and I get defensive if anybody <laughs> critiques you. Like, you're my younger brother. Like, no. <laughs> I've realised, by the way, that we have Chatty House, sorry, mm. Undercurrents, has birthdays two days like next to each other. Really? Yeah. Because you're 24th of July, aren't you? 22nd. You're 22nd. I'm 23rd. That is ridiculous. I know. So we have to have a special A weekend away. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like... <laughs> yes. Yes, a two-day a two day long a two day episode, party. which is just our lives. <laughs> With some gin. <laughs> yeah, 48 hour. The longest episode ever streamed. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. Exactly. Oh, we're going to have to start. Well, start, please tweet in your suggestions. Yeah, start prepping for, our, <laughs> for, what we for our birthday weekend. I would also like weekend. to point out that there is, you know, one day between us and uh, maybe seven years. <laughs> At least. <laughs> At least. <laughs> oh, I can't believe I'm seven years older than you. Anyway. Oh, grim. Who did you speak to this week, um, Ben? This week we've got the second of two interviews that I did in San Francisco. Mm. So last episode we heard from Rebecca Sanders talking about women's rights at the UN. And this week, really exciting interview with Thomas Wies, who is an emeritus professor at the CUNY Grad Centre in New York. And uh, he is one of the world's 
leading experts on the United Nations. Um, so we're talking United Nations in all its forms. And well, basically, we talk about whether it's a relevant institution anymore. So how about you? Who did you speak to this week? I spoke to Tim Eaton, who is a research fellow at the Middle East and North Africa programme here at Chatham House, because he's just got a new paper out called Livia's War Economy, Predation, Profiteering and State Weakness. I I like the piracy undertones there. Yep, good pictures of ships as well. And basically what's going on in Libya at the moment, which is sometimes falls under the radar a bit with... Other things happening in the Middle East, so an interesting chat. Very fascinating. Well, um, I'm looking forward to listening to that, but first let's have a listen to my interview with Thomas. So I'm joined in San Francisco by Thomas Wies, who is the Presidential Professor of Political Science at the CUNY Graduate Centre in New York. He is also the editor of a new virtual issue from International Affairs titled 70 Years of the United Nations in International Affairs, which seeks to assess and explore how the UN as an institution has been covered in the journal throughout the journal's history. And his recent book which came out in March this year, is titled Would the World Be Better Without the UN? A provocative title. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, Ben. I thought it would be interesting to begin, as we're here in San Francisco, with where the UN came from to begin with. Some of our listeners may know that the sort of first ratification of the UN occurred at a conference in San Francisco. So could you take us back to that time and sort of tell us how it began? Well, the actual institution, the world organization, the UN organization, uh, was born in San Francisco, which met between April and June of 1945, still in the midst of World War II, actually, before the end of the war in Japan. In fact, as the conference started, Franklin Roosevelt, one of the architects of the war with Churchill and of the United Nations, died, and uh, his replacement, Henry, Harry Truman, actually was in San Francisco. So here we are in the city of the institution's birth. I think many younger listeners in particular will not understand the extent to which World War II's outcome was hardly a foregone conclusion. In North America, one would say slam dunk. Well, the World War II was not any more of a slam dunk than the Iraq War was uh, more recently. That's to say that if you look around Russell Square and see half the buildings destroyed, you'll understand that at the outset, the defeat of Germany and of Japan were hardly a foregone conclusion. So going back to San Francisco was sort of the capstone on a series of conferences, but the actual story of the United Nations goes back to the 1st of January, 1942 in Washington, D.C., where 26 allies signed something called the Declaration by United Nations. And that document is, in fact, the foundation, the foundation of two things. It was, obviously, the commitment to a wartime alliance to crush fascism. But at the same time, it was also a commitment to multilateralism to international cooperation as a way to, one, defeat 
Imperial Japan and the Third Reich, but it also was a commitment to post-war peace, prosperity, and stability, which revolved around this beast that we now call the United Nations Organization. Maybe with reference to our to our new virtual issue, could you tell us something about how the various institutions that make up the United Nations developed after the war? I, in the virtual issue, you you kind of structure it, formulate this in, in a kind of generational sense. But if you could like tell us something about the developments that lead up to the twenty first century, I know it's a huge span, but let's <laughs> let's have a take us a on the journey. One. Take <laughs> well. One of the challenges when Andrew Dorman contacted me, I said, oh, shit, I have to really go back and read all of these things. But then I recall that I myself have been too bound to last week. Social science in general is too mired in the present. That History somehow gets lost in the shuffle because history invariably complicates matters. And so after initially saying, no, I didn't have time to do this, I then became actually intrigued by the notion of trying to look over these issues. And Daniel Zak, who's a former student of mine who now teaches at Adelphi University and who's worked with me over the years, uh, who had never looked at any of this, I thought I could exploit her too. But she was actually fascinated by the depiction over the years. And so as we looked at the 20 pieces that we selected that are part of the virtual compendium, we looked at them mainly decade by decade because the concerns of the 40s, they carry on. Obviously, peace and security doesn't disappear. But subsequently, they take different forms with the the end of the 60s, really the decolonization, uh, which has changed the planet, changed the United Kingdom, uh, those pink spots were disappearing on the map, and changed the United Nations, because instead of the um, 50 countries that were present here in San Francisco, we now have 193. But by the end of the uh, 1960s, there already were uh, over 100. And so the, the complexion of the institution, the priorities of the institution, the priorities of people giving speeches at Chatham House or <laughs> submitting articles uh, to the journal changed over that period of time. And so actually for readers, and I've just talked to a couple of people downstairs who are actually fascinated by the compendium uh, because it gives you a kind of swift snapshot of what was going on, at least in certain people's minds, to not just the readers of your journal, but to students who can look at this. And it is a a ready-made tool for undergraduates, for example. I think it would be fair to claim that in the media today, particularly in in the UK, but I possibly in the US as well, I'm not as much of an expert on that, that the UN, when it makes the news, often makes the news for negative reasons. And yet, I feel like in the sort of whole scope of its history, there have been many successes. And I wondered whether you had a view on particular successes that the United Nations has has achieved? Is it all this sort of grim grim picture of Security Council votes and vetoes and failed interventions, or have there actually been some 
serious successes. Well, you're now going to allow me to give a plug for my book, um, <laughs> Would the World Be Better Without the UN? Question mark. Uh, even without knowing that uh, former Secretary General Kofi Annan wrote the foreword, your listeners probably would suspect that my answer would be no. And it is no. It would be hard to argue the world would be better with smallpox, for example. <laughs> the elimination of smallpox in 1977 cost $300 million, of which actually only $100 million were in the World Health Organization's budget. And in terms of the United States contribution, that was about 30 to $35 million at the time, which was about one-third of a fighter plane. In exchange, over the last 40 years, we have saved billions, literally billions of dollars in storage of vaccines, administrative costs, let alone the human suffering that we've honored. That same story is playing out at present in terms of polio and guinea worm. In other arenas, I think it would be hard to say, uh, although there are certainly people in Washington who would disagree, that the effort to change the debate about climate change, which has occurred through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, organized by two separate UN organizations, that this was not really a net contribution to contemporary public policy. Or the fact that Utant shuffled back and forth between John Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The archives show that both Kennedy and Khrushchev saw this shuttle diplomacy as a real contribution to the end of what was probably the most serious crisis after the end of World War II. And so the rest of the first half of the book is filled with such stories about concretely, what has this system offered? The second half of the book, however, and is filled with the kinds of stories that appear regularly in uh, newspapers, in the media. In fact, 10 days ago, there was an op-ed in the New York Times which listed a whole series of um, things, which actually appear in the second half of my book as well. <laughs> I mean, it would be very hard to say that if you're thinking about the organization as both the member states, the 193 member states, as well as the people who work for it, the 100,000 or so civilian officials worldwide or the 100, 110,000 soldiers and uh, police, it would be hard to argue that you know those member states, had they been somewhat less hypocritical uh, in 1994 in the face of Rwanda's genocide, or at present in Myanmar or Syria, that the world couldn't have been a whole lot better off had they behaved. In thinking about the future, one has to, has to build on what the institution has done and could do, mm. and also address the obvious shortcomings in terms of member states commitment to the institution and its operations. And you mentioned earlier that you kind of foresee a third generation to this multilateral cooperation uh, in the world. We've got the League of Nations as generation one, United Nations number two. What does the United Nations need to do then to reach the third generation? What is this renewed multilateral cooperation? What does it look like? Well, here we're now involved in some blue sky efforts uh, in trying to, one, 
look toward the future and sort out my preferences from what is politically even imaginable at present. Mm. Certainly with the Trump administration, the UN uh, is not a four-letter word, but it's a two-letter invective that, you know, allies the institutions of the UN system, even NATO, are we've never seen any of these done anything good for the United States, and it's a zero-sum game. So at present, my effort amounts to trying to tell some stories to say that, whoa, you know, U.S. interests have definitely been served on numerous occasions by this institution. Mm. However, what I think is clear, uh, it won't be in my lifetime, but maybe my grandchildren's, that if there are global problems, they require global solutions. Not every problem, but lots of problems. If we're thinking about the next pandemic, Ebola plus, or if we're thinking about the proliferation of nuclear weapons, or if we're thinking about slowing down, certainly not halting, climate change, if we're thinking about terrorism or dealing with the downsides of globalization, there are certain things that countries can do on their own, but there also are a huge number of conversations and policies and eventually implementation efforts that have to go beyond national boundaries. So I would see in the interim the UN becoming more of an honest broker. I would see the UN system as working in fewer countries, most of which are the poorest and conflict-prone. I would see the UN as a system, however, looking at principles, standards, and norms that have to apply across the board, and hopefully eventually by pulling together a host of partners to address these problems under the rubric of whatever we'll call it, the third generation. I wondered, as we're in the US this week, I wondered if we could talk specifically about how the United States views the United Nations as an institution. And obviously, you've already mentioned that that the Trump administration is sceptical, to say the least, <laughs> of, its, of its uses. But is that a partisan opinion? Or are politicians on both sides of the spectrum in the US sceptical about the United Nations? And how does it figure into current domestic politics? Well, the United Nations is virtually absent from public policy debate. (laughs) We've got a lot of other issues that are a whole lot more important and that occupy uh, the print and electronic media. Um, What's interesting over time, however, is that... any public opinion polls that there's one done annually by the Chicago Council of Global Affairs looking at U.S. public opinion, it's always somewhere around 60% of this uh, somewhat ignorant population who are more generally in favor of what the U.N. does, sometimes 58%, sometimes 64%, but somewhere around 60%. The problem is that that most people uh, are not really aware of the strengths and the weaknesses. And If you go back to the presidential debates between Trump and Hillary Clinton, there was not a single mention of multilateralism or the UN system. So very few people understand the extent to which the United States actually and its values sustain this institution. Mm. It's the the rules-based order that the United States helped create and is actually 
sustained and nourished and championed largely over the last 70 plus years, that story is all too absent in most people's minds and it's also completely absent from the public debate except taking pot shots at it. And now that the president has named his third, yes, third national security advisor in a matter of um, 15 months, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in New York, who has never seen an ally or an institution that he liked, has never seen a war that he didn't like. We're at a very, very difficult moment uh, uh, in terms of U.S.-U.N. relations, which is probably why the current Secretary General, uh, Antonio Guterres, whose term began virtually at the same time as Trump's, his on the 1st of January, Trump's on the 21st of January 2017, is tiptoeing somewhat, uh, walking on eggshells in terms of what next. The U.S. has cut back totally on its funding for the Population Fund, actually is an essential activity in terms of women and girls' reproductive health. It's totally pulled out of UNESCO. It's no longer participating in the Global Compact on Migration. It obviously pulled out of the Paris Agreement brokered by the UN, and the the litany will continue. Uh, So this is a very, very difficult moment. Taking a, a more global look then, in this time of U.S. pullback, are there opportunities for other powers, perhaps China, India, Russia, to have greater influence in the United Nations? And do you think they seek to have greater influence in the United Nations? Do they, do they see it as a useful tool? Well, I would say that Russia sees no interest in the United Nations. Uh, it's been subject to huge criticisms over Syria, Ukraine, Crimea, Etc. Etc. Russia's foreign policy consists of driving wedges into the Western alliance, the European Union, with Brexit, and the U.S. and its allies. So the Russian policy is wedges in the West. I think the Chinese are different. I think the Chinese are aspiring to play a role uh, on the world stage. They think that they should have had millennium ago, um, and so they're finally coming into their own. And it's in that respect, of course, that the Trump administration is handing China opportunities on a silver platter. Mm. China has now come out as uh, the champion of stability, predictability, free trade, uh, while you have, ironically, the U.S. pulling out of climate and China becoming the champion of climate change, somewhat ironically as it's become the biggest producer of greenhouse gases. But China is taking this role seriously. It has, in fact, seriously attacked pollution in its cities, many of which you can't breathe in. Um, And so it also is moving ahead on the green technologies uh, while and closing coal plants and coal mines, whereas the United States, I don't think we're doing it, but anyway, the president is saying, yeah, I got to have more coal and coal mines and uh, green technologies are not worth it, et cetera. So I think there's a real difference between Russia and China on this score. Russia going it alone and seeing uh, advantages in, in playing it alone. China, 
seeing an advantage in uh, occupying a um, better spot in the limelight on the world stage, including the UN. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, uh, the Trump administration is uh, not only facilitating, but abetting that. A lot of this interview has been about challenges and Obviously, there are lots of issues facing the United Nations, but uh, just to leave us with some positivity, are you optimistic for the ability of the United Nations to reform as you think they should? Yes. Um, I, <laughs> alas, uh, I'm an inveterate optimist or I wouldn't be in this business and I wouldn't have spent so much time analyzing mm. the behavior and misbehavior of the UN and humanitarian institutions uh, in, in another life. I think it's better to be an optimist and occasionally wrong than a pessimist and being always right. Mm. And so I really, really believe that there is much more room for change, maybe not transformation, but certainly positive change than most people think. Thomas Wies, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. So I'm here with Tim Eaton, who is senior researcher. Research fellow. Research fellow. But would happily take the promotion. (laughs) But soon to be. (laughs) Research fellow. You had it here first. (laughs) The Middle East and North Africa programme here at Chathamhouse. And we're here to talk about your new paper, which is called Libya's War Economy, Predation, Profiteering and State Weakness. Cracking title, Tim. Thank you very much. Yeah, excellent. So, I thought to start, maybe we could talk a little bit about where Libya's been at since Gaddafi. Mm. So, <laughs> a, a bit of a yeah, Sorry. big question, start, a bit of a long and winding tale, but of course, since the overthrow of the regime in 2011, Libya has undergone a transition of sorts which effectively fully came off the rails in 2014 Mm -hmm. when elections were disputed and effectively two rival assemblies claimed to be the legitimate representative of the Libyan state. Uh, Aligned to that you have um, a military escalation by one group under now Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar and then attempts to put it back together again since 2015 in the Libyan political agreement. But um, I think onlookers would be right to be confused when they see two, sometimes three governments claim to be the legitimate representative, various groups claiming to be the legitimate armed forces. And really what you have is a kind of a mess, a very fragmented scene of competing actors, uh, each kind of vying to control the country each of whom lacking the ability to control the whole of that uh, country. So really what you have is a lot of groups trying to consolidate their interests in localities, focusing on short-term gains, as opposed to uh, necessarily coming together to seek a long-term settlement for returning functioning central governance to the country. And those different factions, do they have different support from the international community? Is the community, international community split on, or is there sort of a consensus on who, by and large, the world thinks is sort of the legitimate government? So the international community has been split over, over Libya. Um, at the moment, the uh, UN-backed government of national accord is effectively the executive uh, body which was created by a Libyan political agreement, which ostensibly each of the international powers 
bought into. Mm-hmm. And, and so principally, uh, you'll see the UN and Western powers aligned behind that um, government of national accord, which is headed by Fayez al-Sarraj, who's mm-hmm. the recognised prime minister. But at the same time, the international community has interests on different levels, and particularly on the security level and perspectives on countering uh, so-called terrorism. That's where you'll see a lot of interaction, particularly with Khalifa Haftar in the east. Mm -hmm. And we've seen uh, the UAE and Egypt in particular provide significant support to Haftar, despite his opposition to the Libyan political agreement. And um, it's also clear that Western powers, ministries of defence and special forces have been operating in the east with some degree of collaboration with um, Haftar. So it's it's a mixed situation. Mm-hmm. The international community hasn't been singing off the same hymn sheet, that's for sure, which has allowed various um, actors to continue to frustrate or undermine internationally mediated efforts. And so while all of this sort of political confusion is going on within the country, your paper is looking at the sort of war economy and what's happening whilst that's going on. So I wanted to look at smuggling first. Sure. So what sort of smuggling is going through Libya and what's the sort of history of that mm. before this current state? Well, I think when you when you place uh, Libya's economy in this context where there's no recognise or there's there are multiple uh, governments and a, a dispute among them, uh, there's an e- economy which is really struggling, mm. a spiralling rate of the black market and such security uh, fragmentation. You see that, that really conditions uh, the, the economic um, environment. And smuggling in Libya has long been um, part, of the, part of the scene. So if you look at um, human smuggling under Gaddafi, a degree of it was allowed. It was seen as kind of a, a lever over international, uh, the international community, and particularly Italy, um, to extract concessions. And clearly certain groups would be allowed to do it on a limited scale as a means of perpetuating that. But it was quite closely controlled from the top in that sense. There was a, de- yeah, a degree of control, mm-hmm. exactly. And um, then Libya heavily subsidises fuel and a number of basic foodstuffs. And the subsidisation of fuel and these things was seen as a fob, if you like, given to the border communities who could survive off of trading those cross-border, for example, basic foodstuffs and fuel to Tunisia, mm-hmm. um, has long been a cottage industry. And it was also seen by Gaddafi in that sense as a means of exerting some kind of economic control over the borderlands of the neighbouring states. Mm-hmm. But of course, once the uh, regime falls and the monopoly of force falls with it, the wheels kind of come off in a way because basically that engenders open competition for control of this sector. Mm -hmm. And as other parts of the economy weaken, uh, the incentives to be involved in that sector grow. And you see, of course, a massive increase in in human smuggling, Mm -hmm. but also of other things such as fuel smuggling, which get less press outside of Libya but are seen as um, as major, major problems. I'd really like to come back to the fuel smuggling bit in a second, but on the, on the human smuggling, I mean, where are we talking about moving people from and to? Effectively, I think what you realise is that smuggling takes the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. So the interlinked crises in, in Libya basically mean that a lot of smuggling routes kind of divert and start going through Libya at a certain point. But effectively, you're more or less looking at two major routes. Mm-hmm an eastern route and a western route. The western route bringing people from predominantly West Africa through the Sahel 
and up through Niger mm-hmm. into uh, into Libya and the eastern route coming from the Horn of Africa. And interestingly, they look a little bit different on a political economy level because the eastern route seems to be a little bit more coordinated, mm-hmm. connected to more um, organised networks of uh, crime headed by uh, East African smugglers, mm-hmm. whereas the western route seems to be a little bit more uncoordinated whilst there are coordinated journeys it's often the case that people who are traveling don't have all of the money required to get all of the way so they kind of have a pay-as-you-go modality Mm -hmm. which leaves them a bit more open to being um, you know taken advantage of or extorted along the way because effectively the by stopping and trying to work Mm -hmm. they can get into get into trouble they're much more obvious uh, targets and it's interesting particularly once inside Libya the south of the country is particularly um, connected to a lot of this smuggling. Okay. But once you go past the south, it's increasingly connected to armed groups. So one of the things I've been looking at in the paper is the development of protection rackets mm-hmm. around these kinds of activity. Yeah. And who's running those without naming names? Obviously. Sure. Um, <laughs> although I tried in the paper, which was uh, yeah, of interest to Chatham House's lawyers. Um, <laughs> but uh, effectively, I think you've got to look at all of these things as kind of networks of actors. Mm. So clearly... In the north, and particularly on the northwest coast, you see armed groups are the ones that often control the staging post, i.e. where where migrant boats would leave for uh, Italy, or they control detention centres. So particularly, it's very difficult for smugglers to operate in that area of the country without having or paying some kind of rent or tax to an armed group. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've increasingly seen over the last three or four years is that the armed groups have become more directly involved in those operations. And that might be because armed groups have struggled to extract the same amount of money out of the state as they could before 2014. Right, so they're more reliant on sort of individuals in that sense. Yeah, I, th- I think that they've found alternate means of uh, generating revenue. But of course, they also need to continue to generate revenue to sustain themselves and sustain their position because mm. they're under a lot of threat from rivals. And so um, we've seen, for example, in the human smuggling sector that actually the price of crossing the Mediterranean has dropped dramatically because effectively what we've seen is a market of these armed groups and these networks competing against each other to undercut each other. Mm. There are other factors as well, such as the use of rubber, of rubber boats, but you can see that this is a sector that's really begun to coalesce and become more controlled, so it's much harder for an individual smuggler to do the job that he would have done or she would have done prior to 2011. Mm. And in fact, this is the what you notice about much of Libya's economy, which is why I talk about war economy, is that the use of violence is much more front and centre. So these guys have to be armed. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, what has this done to yeah, the levels of violence within society? It must, it must have gone up enormously in that sense. If you've got small groups who are so competitive and having to compete on quite small margins, I'd imagine, the levels of violence must have gone up dramatically. There is a lot of violence, but I think when you compare it to other violent conflicts in the region, Mm. it's much lower intensity. I think that there is much less of a propensity to engage in heavy fighting amongst these groups. So it's a lot of positioning. But certainly we have seen that there's been a lot of um, armed conflict over control of uh, specific routes. And there was a big example um, in mid last year where one of the principal launching points for Europe became the scene of a staged battle between a group that had effectively taken money to stop human smuggling and the networks of people that were disadvantaged from the deal that those guys had done. Interesting thing about that deal was the guys that 
tried to stop the human smuggling had previously been the ones that were running it. So um, that shows you a lot about the kind of rentier model mm. of these armed groups. It's effectively turned the market from pro-human smuggling, <laughs> making money from it, to then people realising that they could make money from stopping it. Yeah. And then on fuel, so what fuel is being smuggled? So I think what we often tend to think about in smuggling in, in Libya is people think Libya's got tonnes of oil, which of course it does. And people think, OK, therefore, oil smuggling is the big deal, perhaps. And, you know, because we've heard a lot about this in, in Iraq and Syria with ISIS. Mm. Uh, but in reality, uh, the international community has effectively stopped the east of the country being able to sell crude oil directly into the markets. And actually, there's a degree, a pretty good degree of control over the sale of crude through Libyan institutions. And that is, at the end of the day, the lifeblood of the Libyan economy. Mm -hmm. But Libya doesn't refine most of its own product. It imports that product. Okay. So particularly petrol, diesel, for example. And what we've seen since 2011 is an increase in that supposed domestic demand, but right. increasing amounts of diversion of that fuel. So effectively, whilst it's heavily subsidised, it's being diverted upstream and sold at a major profit. Okay. The ways that that's work's been different, so as I mentioned at the beginning, um, it used to be the case that many on the border would fill up a jerry can or fill up a car with an oversized tank, pay the local subsidised rates and then drive it across the border and make a, a good profit on that, on that tank. But increasingly we've seen more sophisticated schemes kind of coming to a head in the transportation of almost industrial scales of of, of diesel through the international sector via Malta into Italy and being sold at the petrol pump in Italy. And th on that, you get a very interesting connection of actors. Yeah. Uh, in, in the case that I uh, study in my paper, you get a criminal network that was locked up by Gaddafi pre-2011 for drug smuggling, connected to a revolutionary group that now controls the national oil company's refinery in one of the cities to the uh, Maltese and then Italian Mafia. Mm. And interestingly, the politician that is alleged to have signed the registration papers very, for very the group... Very, very important word there as Indeed. Well. <laughs> Although, I have, as I have learned, that does not absolve of it, but there is documentary alleged, uh, evidence yes. of this. Mm -hmm. The politician that signed the registration of the company mm -hmm. is a boycotting member of the Presidency Council, the UN-backed government national accord. Right. So within that example, you have a, a wide array of actors, each benefiting in, in different ways from working together, yeah. which kind of shows you the scale of the problem. And so how, uh, obviously I'm sure it's very difficult to know completely, but how much of the, pop, how many, how much the population is involved in this sort of illegal economy? You know, is it, is it a very small percentage? Is it just people at the top and then smugglers? Or is it becoming a job for a lot of people? I think this is a really good question and one that I'd really like to understand better. I mean, it's clear when you look at human smuggling models, particularly in the South, mm. that it's not the case that you have entirely organised groups that have a supply chain that works through just seamlessly. Actually, it's usually the case that, say, someone owns a, a pickup truck, their group, their tribe, etc., controls an area, so they can drive the pickup truck with people through that area and get some money from it. Mm -hmm. um, there are people that do all kinds of other different things. Maybe they have a house which they put towards it. So there is a trickle-down, certainly in some of the human smuggling um, mm. stuff. But at the same time, I think that it may be the case that that trickle-down is lessening or becoming more under scrutiny. So if you look at the fuel smuggling case in the city of Zawara, 
that's one of the hubs of fuel smuggling. Mm -hmm. And now it's almost impossible to get subsidised fuel in that city. People are selling it at black market rates, which means that it's being smuggled in the area that people are living. So effectively, that community who you might assume would be benefiting from the fuel smuggling are clearly paying much higher prices and not benefiting in the same way. I think um, we've seen over time that the business models of this stuff are kind of going upstream. And as they go upstream, the trickle down becomes less. Mm. Although that and that's a that's an interesting development, I think. So what's the government trying to do about this? Are they trying to do anything about this? Are they bothered? <laughs> so uh, it's it's very tricky because mm. the government clearly uh, if we're talking about the government of national accord, yeah. it has limited uh, control over the ground and by most accounts, is almost entirely dependent on the, the will of uh, Tripolitanian rather, militias to allow them to continue to function. Mm -hmm. So the extent to which it can push back against this kind of stuff is, is questionable. And I think this has been a classic problem. So if you look again, there's a great example of fuel smuggling where in this uh, city of, of Zawiya, the national oil company calls out the local group for smuggling fuel. And the local group is outraged and says, OK, if you're going to accuse us of this, then we will leave the refinery. But we can't be responsible for the security incursions or the security impacts of what may follow. Within a couple of days, there's a protest in and around that area. And to cut a long story short, from the refinery, the electricity power generating station is cut off, which causes a 900 kilometre blackout across the Libyan coast which incidentally seemed to come to an end when that armed group returned to the refinery. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a message, you know, there's a lot of um, unintended consequences and enforcement capacity is a major, major problem. Mm -hmm. So this is something with which the Libyan state has really struggled to contend. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's effectively taken a policy of just pure co-optation. For example, bringing armed groups under the umbrella of the state, providing state salaries, etc. Mm -hmm. With the thought being that if they're legitimised, that you can reduce, reduce such activity. But they've been incorporated, yet their command ch chains of command, etc. haven't got been changed. Right. So effectively, it kind of means that they get paid twice and they can continue to do the things that they were doing before. And it's just been legitimised by the state slowly. Yeah, and, and it's, but it's worth pointing out that, of course, in a conflict and under the constraints that the Libyan government has, um, capital investment in local communities is effectively gone because the Libyan state can barely cover, uh, can't cover, in fact, its, state, its, its salary bill. Right. So it's losing money year after year and it's burning through its foreign currency reserves, reserves very fast. Okay. But that means that it's not investing in health services, mm -hmm. it's not providing local services. Of course, the result of this is that states, because of its additional problems, um, isn't able to provide it at the local level. So that gives a kind of narrative to a lot of local groups to say, OK, look, the state's not giving you the stuff that you need. So we can do this kind of stuff because we need to provide a service and we need to kind of pay for it, if you like. Yeah. But of course, this sets up a vicious cycle whereby the state's never going to be able to provide those things because of the local activities that are uh, perpetuated. One other thing I wanted to ask was, has anybody been arrested for this <laughs> in Libya? I mean, is there, a, is there a setup where people are arrested for smuggling? Yes. And in fact, um, I'd say um, one of the bright spots is the fact that um, this sm smuggling ring that I was mentioning earlier to Italy has actually been arrested. So okay. the uh, Libyan smuggler was was arrested and there's been good cooperation between the Italian um, 
anti-organized crime, I forget the exact um, name yeah. of the Carabinieri, but units and with Libyan stake. And I think stakeholders, and I think that that's a good example of how international uh, cooperation over these things and interdiction could could work because mm. it's clear that the Libyan authorities have limited ability to enforce. Yeah. But they also have limited capacity to investigate, etc. So pressure from the international community on these kinds of actors to shut these things down, I think, is is worthwhile rather than always seeing things through the prism of uh, counterterrorism yeah. or migration, actually looking at ways to strengthen Libyan institutions and kind of a bottom up kind of approach to state building in Libya, yeah. I think would be something that the international community could give a great deal more support to. And are you positive about the future of Libya? It's a pretty tough situation, mm -hmm. but I do always fall back on the analysis that, you know, at least if you look at the amount of resources available and you look at the number of people and many of the fissures that exist in other places in, in the region, in other conflicts such as Syria, mm. aren't there. I mean, it basically seems to rest upon trying to find some kind of power sharing um, settlement yeah. and the challenge is that that has to be a very complicated one and people have to buy in because it's so fragmented yeah. but I think that you have to look for some of the positives in this and, and I find positives in the story of the war economy as well because it's certainly the case that all of these actors and certainly armed groups depend upon the acquiescence of local communities they're mm -hmm. from these communities to a degree they represent these communities and when they lose that buy in they can disappear quite quickly. So I think that there is a degree of kind of people power, social pressure in Libya that can be um, mobilised to push things forward. And so I don't see it as hopeless, but it's certainly pretty tough. OK, that's great. <laughs> you know, not a negative note to end on. Um, well, thanks very much, Tim. And you can read this great paper at chathamhouse.org. And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. I hope you've enjoyed our conversations this week. The two pieces we talked about will be linked below. And if you're feeling generous, do leave us a review, not just because we need constant affirmation, um, but also because it helps other people find us. And do follow Chatham House on Twitter, at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>